This morning we're going to look together at Joshua chapter 9 and uh, the Gibeonites finding mercy. Uh, the heading in the NIV is the Gibeonite deception. And that's the kind of thing that is uh, often given as a heading in different uh, translations of the Bible. And that's true. But uh, the overwhelming thing about this uh, passage is that these people, the Gibeonites, experience God's mercy. Yes, they were deceptive, but God was gracious to them. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Let's just read as we start verse 14 and verse 15 of Joshua chapter 9. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. They gave them a solemn promise. And uh, they kept to that promise. The Israelites have come into the land of Canaan. They've uh, crossed the Jordan. Jericho has fallen. Ai eventually has been conquered. And then last time, as we're looking at chapter 8, the people had gathered and they had renewed the covenant. And they'd gathered as a nation before God and given thanks to him. The book of Moses had been read and they uh, had committed themselves to live in the light of his instructions. And uh, so the people of the land are conscious that change is happening. These people, these hundreds of thousands of people have come and uh, they are beginning to conquer the land. And uh, the reputation of the Israelites is spreading. And there are two reactions, really. The main reaction comes from those described in the first verse as the kings west of the Jordan. And uh, there's mention there of kings who came together and decided we have to fight. Verse 2, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. The people of God are coming, what are we going to do? We're going to fight them. Uh, in fact, they've changed. They had been afraid of them, but now they decide they better, had better fight. But uh, the Gibeonites do something different. They too realize that they've got to reckon with what is happening, and they seek a peace treaty with Joshua and the people. Verse 3, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse, but their basic desire was to make peace and to find security. Uh, Matthew Henry, when he's commentating on this uh, passage, says the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. And that's a challenge, I think, to us as we hear the truth about God and the truth of the gospel. Do our hearts become softer or do they become harder? against God. That, that's a sort of division that is taking place in this chapter. There's that fighting against Israel, trying to defeat them, and there is that recognition, a reality, we need to seek peace with these people and with their God. In the New Testament, Paul speaks about the effect of the preaching of the gospel, and he says, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? It's a solemn thing. When we are Christians and we have people who we would love to see come to know the Lord Jesus, perhaps members of our family, our neighbours, 
And some we see whose hearts are softened and others somehow don't respond to the gospel. It's the same message, it's the same saviour, but the effect upon people is quite different. I wonder how do you respond to God? Is your heart being softened to him by the things that happened? That was really what happened to the people of Gibeon. They faced reality. But let's look forth first at those who united in opposition, in an alliance against Israel. And uh, we're told that they did this together. Uh, They came together. They did it with one accord. And they thought, let's fight together. If we stand together, then perhaps we can defeat them. Don't let them pick us off one by one as Jericho and Ai have fallen. We'll unite against them. They've overcome their fears and anxieties. At first, when Joshua and the people came into the land, we're told that the hearts of the people melted in fear. And they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. But now they say, we're going to face them. We're going to fight them. And there's a united opposition. It's something that happens again and again through the history of the church. It happened in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When he came to this world, there was a united opposition against him, as well as many people who believed in him. When Peter is preaching in Acts before the, uh, not preaching, sorry, he's speaking to the church after he's been tried by the Sanhedrin. And he talks about how God has fulfilled uh, the words of David in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And then he adds this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. But here's this alliance. These kings possibly didn't get on together, really, but they joined together to fight against Israel. Certainly Herod and Pontius Pilate were not great friends, but in the opposition to Jesus, they joined together. And we see today, don't we often, political leaders and powers wanting to to stop the preaching of the gospel, whether it's in countries like China, uh, where there are increasing rules uh, against proselytizing, or, or other places in Muslim countries, opposition to Christ and to the gospel. And uh, it's a stubborn, it's a determined reaction and resistance to God. And one of the reasons why it happens in Joshua is because of the people gathering together to renew the covenant. In other words, they realize this is, this is more than just an army coming, a big army. This has got to do with God. It's a spiritual battle that is involved. And uh, it's that which stirs them. Now, when all the kings of the West heard about these things, most of all for them gathering in the presence of of God, and uh, they realize that they're fighting not against just human beings, but against the living God. And uh, that's often the opposition. That's why around the world today, the question of conversion is a big issue people converting, and there's great opposition to it. 
people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in him and for their lives to be changed. And in different ways, that's one of the big issues being discussed in, in, in different parts of the world. And uh, as they hear that these, these people and Joshua have not only won great victories, but they, they've gathered together at a, an historic place, a significant place, and they've read their scriptures and they've committed themselves to serve the Lord, they realize that this is a, a spiritual battle. You know, do we see our calling to be the people of God as a spiritual issue? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. One of the signs that God's people are serious about serving him is that we use the spiritual means, the spiritual weapons which God has given us, uh, the gospel and prayer, and we unite together to proclaim that gospel. If we are in disarray or we're half-hearted, then, then our impact upon people and upon our nation will be far less. In a sense, we can learn from these kings when they came together. It's so important as God's people to be together and to put the cause of the gospel ahead of all our own personal private interests uh, in order that we might see the success of the gospel. So here's one response to the Israelites coming in. There's opposition, concerted opposition, making war against Joshua and Israel. And we today, as God's people have been in every age, are, are involved in a battle. Are we ready for it? Are we engaging in it? But then the Gibeonites are really the main theme of this chapter. And uh, they too were uh, a great city, the people of Gibeon. And uh, they knew that the coming of Joshua and the people into the land was significant. And uh, they knew what God's command was. Uh, they mention it later in verse 24. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give the whole land, uh, to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. In other words, they realize that God is in this. And they realize that they are ripe for judgment. Remember, the judgment that came upon these people was because of their continued sin, their continued rebellion against God. And, and now the time had come for judgment. And the, uh, the Gibeonites recognize that fact. And perhaps they knew by what they did that one of God's commands to his people in Deuteronomy was that they should destroy the nations in Canaan. And he also said this, make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. And he went on to talk about intermarrying and other things. In other words, the, the things that had led to judgment upon the people of Canaan were things that could poison the people of God. Uh, the thinking of ungodly nations could affect them and undermine them. And uh, they were told that they could offer peace to more distant nations. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, Moses says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So if they're nearby, you must 
condemn them to judgment. But if they're further away, you can enter into a treaty with them. And if they refuse a treaty with you, well, then you, you enter into battle with them. And perhaps the Gibeonites were aware of that. They lived nearby, but they needed to find a, a treaty. And, you know, they were realistic. They teach us something about, are we realistic? Do we face the realities of, of time and of eternity, of our frailty, of our vulnerability, uh, that one day we shall all have to stand before God? Uh, and sometimes we, we go on and we don't really make a serious effort to seek peace with God. Perhaps we see people we know who have, who have faith in God and we recognize what a difference it makes to their lives. We can see how real it is. But for various reasons, we, we hold back and we don't follow, off, follow after what we know to be true. But the Gibeonites weren't like that. They, they realized what was happening and they took action. And of course, they took action as unbelieving people. And they thought, how can we find peace with these people? And, and so they, they contrived this ruse, is how the NIV translates it, a device. And it's quite a complicated one, isn't it? Because they send a delegation with donkeys loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They, they make it look as if they've come a long way. Their clothes, their shoes, uh, their provisions all suggest they've been on a long journey. But of course, it's not true. And they're relying on human wisdom, really, to try to deceive Joshua and the people, in order that they will make a, a treaty with them. And as they go on telling their story, it, it gets more complicated. That's what lying is like, isn't it? Once you tell one lie, you've got to keep on telling other lies in order to make your first lie sound as if it's true. God didn't save them because of their lies. He was gracious to them. They should have told the truth. And they sort of renounced their land and their idolatry, but they didn't. But behind their deception, they were moved by good considerations. There's a humility about them in what they say. In verse 8, they say, we are your servants. And they speak about fearing God. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. And so they are conscious of God and they're conscious of needing to find peace and to have a promise of peace and security. And there's something about that which is true of everyone who seeks God. If we're conscious of our sin and of our failure and if we're conscious that we're accountable to God, we know that we've got to find peace with him and to bring an end to the hostilities. And uh, God knows our hearts. He knows what's going on here with the, the Gibeonites. They're not being straightforward. And he does call us always to be straightforward before him. Uh, when David confesses his sin in connection with Bathsheba, he says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts, in the depth of my being. You require truth. Teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What he's saying is, I'm not interested in just outward actions. 
but I want my very being in the depths of my being to be honest and straightforward before you. Uh, That wasn't how the Gibeonites were, but they were moved by reality. They did know that judgment was coming and they knew that the only safety they would find was by being numbered with the people of God. That's the place of security. Those are the people who are safe. I remember going to Albania and uh, then went into Kosovo. And it was at a time when the Kosovan War had finished. And uh, there had been great opportunities to uh, witness to Muslim people living in uh, Kosovo. And I went into this town in Kosovo with some Christians who were working uh, in Macedonia and Albania and uh, met a man uh, who uh, had become uh, a Christian. Uh, he'd been a dentist and uh, a Muslim, and then he'd become a Christian. Blairim was his name. And uh, the Christian said to Blairim, Blairim, tell us your story. How did you become a Christian? And he was a bit reluctant, but he, he said, well, I had a dream, he said. And uh, I looked up into the sky, and he said when he said it, I can't describe the beauty of what I saw. But I looked up into the sky, and I, I saw a clenched fist. And he said, out of the clenched fist, an, an eagle, uh, a ferocious eagle, began to fly towards me and to the people whom I was with. And uh, he said, I was afraid. Now, there's a picture of his religion as a Muslim. It was fear of God. And then he said, I looked up again, and I saw another hand, and it was an open hand. And out of that open hand, uh, a dove flew towards another people. And I realized that if I was to be safe, I needed to be amongst those people. In other words, the Christians. And he said, I began to seek, to seek God. And somebody gave me a New Testament. I began to read. And uh, he became a Christian. But you see, he, he realized in his dreams, God said to him, you're amongst the wrong people. And if you were to find security, you need to be amongst my people. And that's something which the Gibeonites recognized. God was with Joshua and the Israelites, and he wasn't with them. And so they sought him. Uh, Do you think of the earlier story of Rahab? Uh, Rahab, who again sought mercy because she said, we've heard what has happened. Uh, Please have mercy. Remember me and my family. And God did. And uh, these people, these Gibeonites, found mercy at Joshua's hand. Uh, He made a a promise to them, a solemn promise, a treaty of peace, because he thought they'd come from a long way away and he was able to do it. As we see, he didn't consult the Lord about it, but he did make a covenant of peace. And uh, God is rich in mercy. And uh, he's merciful to the Gibeonites. And they, they're going to be living amongst the people of God. You read about them later. You can read about them in Chronicles and in Nehemiah. And they're there still amongst the people of God. And the older translations say they were hewers of wood and drawers of water. And that's what they did. They had mundane tasks to fulfill. But they were happy to do that. Uh, in verse 25, we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right. And uh, they were there serving the altar of the Lord, cutting wood and carrying water. I wonder, do you, if you're a Christian this morning, do you say, you know, it's such a privilege to be a Christian. 
There's nothing that I won't do in order to further the cause of the gospel. The most ordinary task I'm happy to do. Day after day they were cutting wood and carrying water, hard work. But they were safe. And they had found peace. A covenant of peace was made with them, a treaty of peace. In Psalm 84 we're told, Better is one day in, the, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Lowliest of tasks. What a privilege it is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the kings, they formed an alliance against Joshua and the Israelites. The Gibeonites, they made a request for peace, albeit with deceit. Perhaps you can look back to when you first became a Christian and you look back and say, well, I didn't really understand what the gospel was about now and my thinking was, was perhaps not right. But I knew I needed to find God and to find peace with him. John Newton, whose hymn we've just sung, Amazing Grace, when he was a, a man who'd been far from God for a long time, all his life. And then he was in a ship that was in danger of sinking the Atlantic and he, he cried out to God and said, oh Lord, if you get me safely to uh, land then I'll give the rest of my life to you. It was really a sort of deal he was striking, but he later came to know the gospel in a clearer way, and it's often true like that. Uh, We come to experience God more clearly uh, after we come to the Saviour. But Joshua and the Israelites were deceived. They made a, a peace treaty, and they trusted in their own judgment. You see, we're reading the history of God's people, We've seen already that they made a mistake when they went against Ai. They were overconfident. And Achan had disobeyed God's command. In other words, it's not a story of of moving from one triumph to another. There are struggles. There are things that we learn. We make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And any idea that somehow we won't make mistakes as a church or as a people, uh, Scripture teaches us that we're in a process of learning. And Joshua and the people are in a process of learning. And once again, they don't inquire of the Lord. There were ways for them to inquire of the Lord, but they didn't use them. Today we have his word, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us in making decisions. And we have the promises of God, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Know him in all the decisions you make. Or again in Proverbs, commit to the Lord whatever you do, And he will establish your plans. It's so important, isn't it, in our personal lives, in your life as a church, to to seek God, that the decisions we make are pleasing to him. And here's a a situation where Josh and the people don't do that. Uh, They just say, well, it looks right, doesn't it? You know, look at their clothes, look at their shoes, look at their food. It's obviously come a long way, and that's what they've told us. So we'll, we'll make a treaty with them because we're able to do it. But... They'd been deceived, and uh, it wasn't really true. And we can be like that. We can be unwise in the way we make decisions. They acted impetuously and rashly. And it was just a few days later that they realized they'd been deceived. Verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living nearby. Yes, it's so quickly they realized that they had been deceived and uh, it warns us to be cautious and to be wise in the way we make judgment. You see part of it was flattery 
The Gibeonites spoke of them. We've seen these wonderful victories you've won. And obviously God is with you. And, uh, you know, when people speak well of us and are positive towards us, it makes us inclined to want to believe them. Uh, and, and that's what Joshua and the people did. And it, the kings against them were united. But actually what happened in Israel because of this is when the Israelites found out that the Gibeonites had deceived them and that Joshua and the leaders had make it, made a covenant with them, uh, they began to complain. Uh, it's one of the characteristics of the Israelites in the wilderness and now. Uh, the whole assembly, verse 18, grumbled against the leaders. They grumbled, they murmured. And the leaders were at fault. But murmuring and grumbling is never commended in Scripture. It's as if the people are saying, well, we would never have done that. We know better than they do. Why did they do that? They made mistakes. Well, all leaders make mistakes. I think it's why there's constant exhortations in the New Testament uh, to respect those who lead, to submit to them, to recognize their responsibility and their frailties. They are men. And uh, that responsibility means that we pray for them and uh, we seek that God will give wisdom and help to them but division potentially came amongst the Israelites because of the mistake that Joshua had made they'd been brought into a compromise because now they'd given a solemn promise and they they had to keep that promise and uh, they they did that it's easy sometimes, isn't it, where we make a promise and we regret it. Or we find out more later that we want to go back on what we promised. But, but keeping your promise is, is something that is very important uh, in Scripture, that we, we keep our word. Uh, in Psalm 15, David says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live on your holy hill, who, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. And then he says this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. There are times when keeping our promise costs. Now we want to say, well, I don't want to keep my promise. But, but here we see that promises, promises to God, and promises to other people really matter. We're people who stand by our word. We are faithful. One of the older commentators says there are many Christians who would not hesitate to repudiate an agreement concluded under false pretenses. We say, well, we're not going to keep that one because you deceived us. But isn't it interesting in their integrity? They, they keep their promise. They are true to their promise. And and isn't that reminiscent of God? You know, our salvation is based upon promises. The promises of God. His covenant promises. His oath, his covenant and blood. Support me in the whelming blood. God doesn't change his word. When we fail him, he doesn't say, I'm sorry now. Because of the way you've behaved, I'm not going to keep my promise to you. He keeps his promise. He is always true. He always maintains integrity. And uh, we are to be like that in our dealings with others. True to our word. Faithful, dependable. 
And uh, that's what Joshua and the people are. You see, in, in, in this chapter, everybody's at fault in some way. And yet, over it all, there is the grace and the mercy of God. Isn't that a description of the Christian life? Your life and mine. The struggles, the failures, the doubts, the things we do which we wish we hadn't done, and the things that remind us that we don't deserve God's mercy. But there's that bedrock. There's that foundation that we stand on. uh, That God is true to himself. And we can trust his promises and they never, ever fail. Just a few things as I draw to a close by way of application. The gospel offers hope to people who are in the rags of humiliation and godly sorrow. Think of the prodigal son when he comes back to the father. He went away rich, well-dressed, having everything. He comes back having sinned and rebelled and uh, disobeyed God and his father. He's thin, dressed in rags. And all he can do is throw himself upon the mercy of God. Can you remember the time when you first did that? When you could say with the hymnist, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You know, sometimes we want to say, well, yes, I was like that, but I'm not like that now. Aren't you? Aren't I? Aren't we still as needy as ever? We can look at the Gibeonites and say, what terrible things they did. What about you? What about me? When we come to God, we've got ragged clothes on. Our hands are empty. And it's people like that, that in the gospel, God graciously welcomes and accepts and shows mercy too. And what a blessed thing it is to be numbered amongst the people of God. That's what happened to the Gibeonites. The king is going to fight against them. The Gibeonites are embraced. They become part of Israel. And they're there just to serve. Is that your spirit? You're just so glad to be a child of God. So pleased to belong and to be numbered amongst his people. And uh, whatever he wants us to do, we are happy to do. Uh, The Gibeonites say, verse 25, we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right. We're in God's hands. Lord, just take me and use me. And... uh, Help me to serve you faithfully. And then God's mercy, lastly, is greater than our sins and our mistakes. And he teaches us through them. Joshua and the people learned. And they saw his grace to the Gibeonites. And uh, we need to recognize that God is, is bigger than our failures and our struggles. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with our unworthiness. You know, you sometimes hear Christians praying and they pray to their Heavenly Father. They say things like this, we are worms in your sight. Is that really what God is asking us to say? And so there's that idea we're worms. And on the other side, we've got this idea that now we're Christians, we're going to be perfect and never make a mistake. And both are wrong. We're not worms, we're sons and daughters of the living God, saved by his grace. And we're far from perfect. I remember reading a book by a Christian psychiatrist who said that many of the Christians that he met were struggling, trying to hold together a worm theology and an unrealistic perfectionism. And they couldn't reconcile them. 
and neither of them was scriptural. But it was what they'd been taught to think of themselves as. But God's mercy is bigger than our sin. It's bigger than our mistakes. And uh, his mercy is always available to us. And the Kippianites are there. They were wrong. What they did was wrong. But God was bigger than their deceit and more gracious than they could possibly have realized. God is more merciful and kind than other people, sometimes than fellow Christians who can be very unkind and uncaring. And uh, we need to rejoice that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Uh, He doesn't bless us because we've been good, in the sense we've earned it, and he doesn't cast us off when we fail. Uh, Because we're not under law, we're under grace. What a wonderful thing that is to know. that That's the realm in which we live. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Grace shall reign eternally. We're under grace wonder if you and I were to meet the Gibeonites in heaven, able to identify them, I mean by that. Would we say to them, well, I'm amazed that God had mercy on you lot when you went with that deceit to Joshua and the people? Or would you say, you know, the God who was gracious to you has been gracious to me in Jesus Christ. I deserve nothing from his hand, but he has freely loved me and accepted me. And when I read that story, I thought, how wonderful that these people were not judged and destroyed, but found God's mercy. It's a wonderful thing to know that mercy can. Do you know it this morning? You're not trying to earn your way to heaven. You know you've got nothing to bring. But you're clinging to Christ and his cross and trusting every day in his grace and kindness.